So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open them to Revelation chapter 11 is where we'll begin. We're going to go from 6 to 11. We're going to jump around a lot. Um, there is a Bible app event for this, and that will be your buddy because that'll help you. I'll put some of the scripture on the screen, uh, but not all of it. So your Bible will be your friend too. Revelation 11 is where we'll be in a short time. We're actually covering six chapters. Chapter 6, chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. That's six of them. So there's a lot, uh, a lot of uh, real estate we're going to be on here today. Um, these sermons, to me, they feel like throwback sermons. Do you know what I mean by that? They feel kind of uh, old-fashioned almost. It's not some trendy topic. It, they're, they're absolutely not feel-good sermons. You know, you're not like, oh, that just feels so good, what Pastor Steve's saying this morning. And, and there's, they're not filled with colorful verbal illustrations and a story about a little boy with a pony. You know, that, that's just not the kind of thing that we're talking about. These are old-fashioned sermons. So be it. I feel like that's what we need. And um, we're actually moving at a quick pace through the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 6. We've only had, this is the fifth sermon, uh, so we're already in chapter 6. We're not going into a lot of details about what's going on here. For some of you, that's disappointing. You're like, but wait, I want to hit these details. For others, you're like, thank God, I don't want to deal with those details. So um, those details in the book of Revelation, they really don't lend themselves to a Sunday morning environment for a Sunday morning worship service. They're much better in a small group. I think that Perry, uh, Connor, Sue Spade, that small group upstairs often spends time with David Jeremiah looking at uh, those kinds of details, but uh, we're not going to do that here. Rather than talking about all the details from the book of Revolution, Revolution, (laughs) whatever, right? Rather than looking at all the details from the book of Revelation, what I want to do instead is kind of give you a feel for what it is that God wants to communicate. John is writing this. God is leading him to do that. He's writing it to seven churches in the first century that would have been in western Turkey, modern-day Turkey today. And, and he, he had a message for them that applies to us. It fits with us uh, because many of the events, almost all of the events that he's speaking of, have not yet transpired, and even in our lifetime. So it's relevant to us. Uh, the question is, how do we understand them and how do we apply them? And you really can't get an understanding for the book of Revelation unless you have an understanding of the concept of judgment. Judgment. (laughs) We kind of, as a society, we have a love-hate relationship with the word judgment. Uh, We're kind of almost double-minded concerning the word judgment. On one hand, we really like to quote Jesus when Jesus says, judge not or you too will be judged. We usually quote that out of the King James, judge not lest ye be judged. And usually when we're quoting it, we have our hand up like this, judge not, (laughs) judge not lest ye be judged. Because what we're thinking is I don't really want people to be judging me. And we see that verse and that concept is almost a way to hide. Like, okay, yeah, I know I'm sinning, but I'm going to hide behind this verse, judge not lest ye be judged so that you can't get on me about it. But what we haven't done is read the rest of Jesus' words because in the verses that follows, he tells us how to manage that and how to help one another when we're struggling with sin. So in one sense, we love to quote Jesus, judge not lest you be judged, but on the other hand, we almost all love to engage in judgment, almost as a pastime, like it's what we do to kind of pass the time. Let's judge music, let's judge movies, let's judge people, let's judge politicians, let's, let's judge. Hey, who wants to get together and judge on Friday night? Netflix and judge, let's do that, right? Yeah, that would be fun to do that, right? If you don't believe me that our society just loves to judge almost as a pastime, hop onto you not YouTube, hop onto Facebook. I know, for some of you, that's like, I hate Facebook. Yeah, I know, it's because you're judgy. But anyway, uh, 
So get on Facebook and, and, and go to WTAJ, WJAC, any news outlet, find a, a news article. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be about a boy who lost his pony or it could be about some tragedy overseas or some terrible crime that happened locally and just express your opinion there and just watch the vultures come in, right? Yeah, because what they're doing is they have this love affair with judging, but we like to judge. We just don't want people to judge us. And so we're really double-minded about this sort of thing. Um, we feel like judgment's a bad thing when someone's doing it to me, but it's a good thing when I'm doing it to other people. I want to talk to you a little bit about judgment. And I want to kind of, kind of give you a simple definition of it. Judgment is justice enacted. Now, we're going to talk about justice today, and we're by no means going to give an entire biblical viewpoint of it. If you want a good biblical viewpoint of it, Timothy Keller has written a book called Generous Justice. It's a great, great understanding of justice, and I would encourage anyone to be reading that. But what judgment is, is justice that is activated, that is happening, that has been inactive. It is a matter of punishing evil, punishing the bad going down through Virginia. I'm zipping along. It's a 70 mile an hour speed zone. So I'm going about 74. I get off an exit to go somewhere up toward the hotel. And it's a four lane highway like I just got off and I'm going 74 mile an hour. And there's a guy with lights in the mirror behind me. Like, what is he doing there? This is a 45 zone. Did you know that, sir? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, you're way over the speed limit, buddy. (laughs) You're in trouble. Well, you get punished for that. If you can't do the time, what do they say? Don't do the crime, right? Because justice says if you go 75 in a 45 zone, you're going to be found guilty and pay a penalty. And I could look at that guy and I could say, I really don't think it's fair that you're doing that. And he's going to say, you passed in a period of about 30 seconds, four signs that said 45 mile an hour. It's fair. And you're going to be punished. You're the wrongdoer. Defining judgment means understanding that it is a matter of punishing the bad. It also is a matter of rewarding the good. Do you know Jermaine Bell? Of course you don't. But you probably heard of Jermaine Bell. He's that seven-year-old who was saving money to go to Disney. Time Magazine reported that he was so moved by the devastation of Hurricane Dorian that he gave all the money he'd been saving to go to Disney World. He gave it to buy food and water for those who were without due to the hurricane. And when Disney heard about him, they rewarded him with a free trip to Walt Disney World. It's going to happen later this month. Now, you understand what happened, right? Disney took it upon themselves to reward the good. They looked at a situation, they made a judgment, and they enacted that. They issued a reward. And that's great. I mean, Disney's got the means to do that for a lot of us, right? Let's all send our money to Hurricane Dorian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you hear that story, you say, that feels good. I really like that. I like it that Disney did that for that little boy and his family because there is something about us that when justice is enacted, it's good. God's people are pleased when justice is enacted. When the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation sounds, which is by anyone's measure, the beginning of the end, Heaven resounds with a sense of satisfaction. Yeah, justice is being enacted. You can see it if your Bibles are open to Revelation 11. In verse 15, follow along as I read what it says. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, 
And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Do you hear the satisfaction there? Do you hear the sense of joy? The sense of shalom? Do you hear them saying, yes, this is what we've been waiting for? God's people are pleased when justice is enacted. In the very next verse, you see the 24 elders who we spoke about a week or two ago. And and look at what it says in verse 16. It says, and the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to the Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken great power and have begun to reign. Did you hear it? It's satisfaction. It's joy. It's a sense of being pleased because justice is being enacted. Justice is being enacted. Those who oppose God, they're being punished. And in the next verse, it says, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead. And those who have been faithful, they're being rewarded. The latter part of verse 18, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. The time is now. Justice is being enacted. And the people of God are pleased when that happens. This is judgment. This is the righteous justice of God underway. Now, as we look over these chapters, and I said I'm going to talk about six chapters today, so you know I'm not going into detail, but as, we look, as I was preparing for this, I thought, what do we see? What observations can we make that are really germane to us, that are, that are applicable to us? Uh, and, and, and all of them really revolve around God's justice. And I want to tell you well, maybe five things about the justice of God that we see in these passages. What do you observe when you read these chapters? Well, the first is that God's justice will be controlled. It's not out of control. Last week, if you were here, we learned that the lamb who was slain was worthy to open the scroll, to break the seals that were on it. And in Revelation 6, that is what he does. He begins to open the scroll. He opens the scroll. And there we meet the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. You know, back in the 30s or 40s, this is before my time for those of you who may be wondering, Back in the 30s or 40s, there were these four offensive linemen. Did they play for Notre Dame or were they defensive linemen? I don't even know. But they were like, they, they had a nickname, football players, linemen. And they called them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, I got to tell you, I think that the Seal Curtain is a great nickname. I think that the Hogs of the Washington Redskins was a great nickname. But you got to know, the coolest nickname you could have for your defensive linemen would be the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen, they are conquest, war, famine, and death, followed by Hades. Conquest, war, famine, death, and hell. These are the four horsemen, and each of them is released when the lamb who was slain takes a seal off. There goes the first horse and its rider. Second seal. There goes the next one. Now, I want to point out something interesting about their release. So your Bibles need to be in Revelation chapter 6. Can you skip back there to Revelation 6? It may or may not be on the screen. It depends how tired I was when I put this PowerPoint together, okay? But the text tells us that the horsemen have something that's been given to them. Look at verse 2. As I looked, there was before me a white horse. Its rider held a bow, 
and he was given a crown. He rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. Did you catch a phrase? He was given a crown. Look at verse four. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one, and its rider was given power to take peace and from the, from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. To catch the word given shows up two times for that horseman. Look at verse eight. And I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given a power over the fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Do you see that phrase, they were given? He was given. They were given. That that tells me that everything that is happening in the book of Revelation is happening at the hand of God. That it's not like God's kind of given up here and saying like, you know what, these guys are just going to Hades in a handbasket. Let them go. God is in control throughout all that is happening here. His justice is a measured justice that is carried out carefully. There's a second observation I want to share with you. His justice, as controlled as it is, will bring a level of chaos. It will bring chaos and place it in the heart of the world. And I see this happening with that second horseman. Look at verse four again. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. He takes the peace away and his enemies destroy one another. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of a story in Judges chapter 7 of a guy named Gideon. Do you remember Gideon? Gideon's this guy and, and his people, the people of Israel, they're all being attacked and oppressed by the Midianites. And God chooses him and says, I've chosen you to liberate my people. And so he forms this big army and God says, that's too many, that's too many, that's too many. And so it ends up, it's Gideon and 300 guys. And what they have is a sword in one hand, I think. I haven't read this in a while. But I know what they have in the other hand. They have a torch that's covered up by a clay pot, a clay vessel. And at night, they go out and they surround the enemy's camp. And they, and they have this torch here and, a clay, and, and on a cue, they smell. Well, listen, listen to what it says. It says, when the 300 trumpets sounded, they smashed those those um, clay pots, so the, uh, the torches were there. And they screamed, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. And listen to what it says. It says, the Lord caused the men throughout the Midianite camp to turn on each other with their swords. Huh. He did it before. He'll do it again. You see, God's justice brings to this world a level of chaos that is deserved and that is destructive. Third, God's justice, will be cataclysmic. I am really worried that I'm going to say that word wrong. It's not catatonic. It's cataclysmic, right? It's the judgment at the end of the age. And, and the four horsemen after them, the destruction is going to be something that no one can miss. I, I took Revelation 6, starting at verse 12 through 16, and just put some of the highlighted phrases on the screen. You can look to the screen or you can look to the text. Just listen as I read it. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. And by the way, I call this seal because my professor called this seal the great day of God's wrath. Listen to what it says. I watched as he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. That's cataclysmic. The the whole moon turned blood red. That's cataclysmic. 
The stars fell in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. That's cataclysmic. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and every island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth and the princes and generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in the caves among the rocks and the mountains. That's cataclysmic. And verse 16, they called on the mountains and on the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Well, now that's interesting. (laughs) It's interesting to me that they understand where the destruction is coming from. It's not like they think, wow, what has global warming done to us? You understand? They understand this destruction is coming as the wrath of God. It is the wrath of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And they have refused to turn to Him and find His loving kindness. And that kind of language continues from that sixth seal all the way to the last trumpet. Catastrophic damage. And yet, people kind of act like God doesn't mind sin. Have you noticed that? People are kind of like, yeah, I know I'm sinning, but I don't think God really is bothered too much by it. And if he is bothered, who does he think he is? I mean, it's my life. If I want to sin, I can sin. Who does God think he is? But honestly, I don't think he's bothered too much by sin. I got to tell you, if these verses tell you nothing else, they should tell you that God is bothered by sin. And he's not bothered by sin because he's just looking for something to get up in his idea about. You understand that? He's bothered by sin because he sees how destructive it is to that which he holds dear to his heart, human beings and his created order. And he's bothered by sin because it is counter to his very nature. And therefore, and therefore, his justice is cataclysmic. Maybe this is a good place to say that God's judgment will be correct. I often read news headlines to you, you know? And I'm guessing there are some of you who are like, man, I just wish Pastor Steve wouldn't bring up the news stuff. I get enough of that outside of church. I don't want to hear that in church. Why is he always bringing up, like last week we talked about the toddler in Indiana County that they had the the vigil for when they found her. You know, it's so heartbreaking. Why does Pastor Steve bring that stuff up? Here's why I bring it up. So you know exactly how sick our world is. And so you think about it in this context. And you know that the only way that that can ever be remedied is if God intervenes. And he has, and he will. He intervened in the person of Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain. And he will intervene in the person of Jesus Christ again, the lamb that was slain. But here's something very sad. In the end, this world will reject him. It's rejecting him even now. A key passage in understanding this rejection is found in Revelation 9 and then in Revelation 16. So if you want to go to Revelation 9, you can see that in the middle of this cataclysmic judgment, the Bible says the rest of mankind, this is verse 20, Revelation 9, 20. Sorry if I didn't give you that. The Bible says the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Did you, did you hear the phrase that showed up there a couple times? They did not repent. And you read it again. If you move from Revelation 9 to Revelation 16, and you show up at verse 9 of Revelation 16, you read these words. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of the Lord who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent 
and glorify him. Did you hear it? They refused to repent. You, you find it again in Revelation 16, 10, the very next verse says, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom plunged into darkness and people gnawed their tongues in agony and they cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Refused to repent. You understand, it's not that God is doing something morally wrong here. He's giving every opportunity for people to turn to him and receive his grace. But they don't want to do it. People are not basically good. That's humanism. (laughs) People are, in the words of Paris Reedhead, monsters of iniquity apart from the saving grace of God. Monsters of iniquity who love their sin even as they experience their judgment. They're unwilling to repent. So the scripture says, let God be true and every man a liar. Now, you can see from the outline, I have the letter C there. God's justice will be controlled. The letter C again, it'll bring chaos. The letter C again, it'll be cataclysmic. Uh, It'll be correct. And then I couldn't figure out a C for the last point. Sorry about that. I know there's some of you that's gonna bug you for the rest of the week, right? (laughs) Yeah. And, And often there's just this one guy who's like, hey, I got the letter C for you. And then he'll say, comrade. And I'm like, you aren't paying any attention at all, were you? Okay, here it is. God's justice will be bittersweet. Bittersweet. That means something tastes sweet when you first get it, but then you're like, ah, that doesn't taste like I thought it tasted. That tastes bitter. God's justice is bittersweet. Revelation chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 of Revelation chapter 10. You can follow along if you'd like. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. This is a different scroll. It's a little scroll. Verse 9. So I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the little scroll. He said, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will taste as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And then I was told, you must prophesy again to many people, nations, language, and kings. That's the way judgment is. It's a good thing because we do not want to see evil going unpunished. What they did to that child, what he did to that old woman, what they did to those people, there needs to be justice for that. And so it's a good thing, but it's a bad thing because no one who is healthy, spiritually speaking, wants to see people suffer. Not even God wants to. He is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. So what does this mean then to you and me? I mean, how do we apply this? How do we, how do we take this home? And that's really the question when you're looking at the book of Revelation. And too often we miss this obvious question because we're looking at the more sensational question. It's almost like if the book of Revelation is a forest, here's the whole forest, we're standing there looking at a few trees and we don't even notice the rest of the forest there because we're caught in such details. Let me, let me try to answer some of the less important questions for you, okay? Just to get these out of your mind, okay? Less important questions are questions that I go up here and people talk about, like, who is who in the book of Revelation? That would be good to know. Like, who's the Antichrist? Who is Israel? What, what's going on and where's the United States fit into all this? Is Russia Gog and Magog? What about the G7? Okay, I'm gonna answer that question. You ready? We really can't be sure. Okay? Okay? that satisfy you? 
Tough. That's the answer. We really can't be sure. And maybe that's why we keep coming back to those kinds of questions. Here's another less important question. When is all this going to happen? I mean, I heard about earthquakes and what is going on with this particular government thing happening? What's happening in the nation of Israel? And I hear that they've got the ashes of the red heifer finally. And there's a blood moon coming. Oh, that was several years ago. But I know it's got to happen pretty soon here. When is it going to happen? You ready for the answer? We really can't be sure. Jesus says we really can't be sure. He says no one knows the day or the hour, not the angels, not even the sun. Jesus says, I don't know. He's chosen to limit that knowledge from himself, and only the Father knows that. So we're not going to know that. I'm not saying there's something wrong with questions like that. I'm just saying they're less important because there are crucial questions, much more important questions that we need to be asking. And the first one would be, so how do I prepare my heart? I mean, how do I prepare my heart for this? And it is a matter of the heart. The Bible teaches that justice must be satisfied. The Bible teaches that sin cannot be ignored. But here is the beautiful part. And if you don't hear what I said today at all, hear this part, okay? Give me three minutes. Here's the beautiful part. For you and for me, justice occurs at one of two places. Justice is enacted at the end of the age, and that's bad. (laughs) That's what John is writing about with these seals and with these bowls and with these trumpets. Justice is enacted at the end of the age, or... For you and me, justice is enacted at the cross of Christ. And that's good. That's good news. You see, when Christ died on the cross, he was enacting justice. The kind of thing we read about in the book of Revelation is what happened to Jesus as he hung on a cross. He suffered the wrath of God on our part. And justice was being enacted upon him. He was satisfying God's justice. He was paying for our sin. He was paying our speeding ticket. He was paying the price of iniquity. He took the punishment of us all. He carried our guilt and our shame, and he satisfied the court in heaven on our behalf. That's what he's doing there on the cross. And the Bible speaks of that over and over again. One of the places you see it is in Colossians chapter 2 in verse 13 when it says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave, it's on the screen. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. It is as though At the cross, Jesus says, yes, these people have sinned. And yes, these people deserve judgment. Justice should be enacted upon their sin. But I am going to pay the penalty so that justice can be satisfied and they can be forgiven. Justice enacted on our behalf, paid by Jesus at the cross. So how do you prepare for the end of the age? You go to the cross. Going to the cross means you realize that Christ died for you. And you humbly admit that you are deserving of judgment. That if justice were served apart from the cross of Christ, you would die. You would suffer for eternity. It's humbling yourself to say, I want Jesus' sacrifice to count for me. I need his sacrifice to count for me. I want his death to pay for my sins. I need to be saved from the wrath of the Lamb. I will place my trust in Christ. Have you done that? 
The most important question you will ever be asked goes something like this. Does the blood of the Lamb cover your sins so that you are safe from the wrath of the Lamb? (laughs) That's the more important question. That's the essential question. You can have the blood of the Lamb cover your sins by humbling your heart and asking for forgiveness. And when you turn from your sin and trust Jesus, then the sacrifice of Christ on the cross counts for you. It changes your heart. It changes your identity. It changes your priorities. It changes everything. You're saved from his wrath. And then that kind of leads you to begin to think about the second question. Okay, if I prepare my heart by trusting in the blood of the lamb to pay for my sin, how should I live my life? And you know the answer to that before you even finish asking it. You live your life in gratitude. And that gratitude plays itself out in obedience. And that obedience plays itself out in service. You live your life by being in love with the one who loved you and gave himself for you. So that when the Lamb saves you, you want to join him in whatever is important to him. And the distractions of this world that draw you away from engaging in serving him, when you look to the lamb who was slain for you, those distractions, they find their way into the back seat of your life. When the lamb saves you, it makes you want to help as many others as you can escape the same judgment that you saw. This past week, and I'm sorry I can't think of the gentleman's name. An Alliance pastor and missionary died this past week. Can't think of his name. I heard a story yesterday about him, or day before. Ed Jelliff told a story. At Mahaffey Camp three or five years ago, there was a truck, head-on collision. A coal truck hit a box truck head-on. Do you remember that? I remember that, because I looked, I heard the crash, and I looked, and I saw the coal truck, in flames. The front of it was just nothing but flames. What I never knew until yesterday is an Alliance pastor, retired pastor missionary, was in the store at Mahaffey Camp when that happened. And when Ed Jelliff got his wits about him and went down to see the crash, he saw that pastor pulling that truck driver away from that flaming vehicle. He had to exit through the windshield in front. It was laying on its side. And that pastor missionary is pulling him from the flames. Do you see the analogy there? I want to join Jesus in pulling people from the flames. That's how, that's how I live my life. And so I find ways to share my faith with others so that they might experience what I've experienced. I'm doing it right now. And I do it in restaurants. And I do it around a campfire. I cooperate with others in sharing the gospel. Whether it's international workers like Eric, who's going to be coming here in in November to talk to us about what he's doing in, in an area where Islam is just invading like crazy. He's holding up the banner of grace in Christ and the gospel of Christ to those African people. Man, I want to partner with a guy like that. I want to hear what he has to say when he comes here for our missions festival. Because I want to pull people from the flames like I was pulled from the flames. It makes me want to cooperate with international workers and like-minded locals. (laughs) It makes me want to work with my brothers and sisters here on Susquehanna Avenue 
and bridge building so that we can have relationships with people in our community that give us the right to share with them the hope that is within us. And bring them in. Uh, Who can I bring in to the Thanksgiving dinner? Because Pastor C is going to share the good news of Christ. And how can I connect with people at the home for the holidays? Because I want people to know what I know and find what I found. I don't want to convert them to think like me. I don't want to affect them politically. I don't want to get them to act like me. I want them to experience what I have experienced. I want their judgment to occur at the cross 2,000 years ago and not sometime in the near future. That's what I want. And I want to cooperate with Jesus to that end. You know, it is absolutely an amazing thing to think that you and I can avoid the judgment at the end of the age by trusting Christ. Have you done that? Have you done so? Have you turned away from your sin and turned your heart toward Jesus? You can, you can do that today. You can do it in the silence of your heart, so to speak, just by talking to him. Or the other judgment is there. Who would want that? What sane person would not want to turn to Jesus? Experience the forgiveness and transformation, the newness of life, and walk forward serving him and loving him. If that's what you want, I want to invite you to do that right where you are in the quietness of your heart. I want to ask all of us, let's stand together. Can we do that? And if you're thinking to yourself, you know, and this, this happens all the time. If you're thinking to yourself, you know, I've, I've been going to church a long time. And I never really thought about the fact that it's not going to church that makes me a Christian and it's not being good to my neighbor that's making me a Christian. It's not all this other stuff. It, it's that I was destined to judgment and the lamb who was slain was slain for me and if I turn my heart to him and ask him, his death can count for me and I can be one of his. You can go to church a long time and not get that. If you're getting it today, then tell him that. Ask him to forgive you. Tell him you trust him and choose to follow him. And you would do that with words like I'm going to say. Let's bow our hearts together. And in the quietness of your spirit, in the silence of your heart, you can speak to God with words like this. God, I know I don't measure up. (laughs) I believe, though, that you are a God, not just a God of judgment, but a God of love. I believe, God, that you are a good father, who loved us while we were yet sinners, sending Christ to die for us. I believe, Jesus, that you paid the penalty for my sin on the cross. I turn from myself. I trust you. Please forgive me. Make me a new person. I will follow you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, 20 years ago or 20 seconds ago, (laughs) then justice is satisfied in your life. And all that wrath that we just read about in those six chapters out of Revelation, that is not for you because your sins were judged at a cross on a hill outside of of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And you can live for the Lamb who died for you.